I'd like to introduce Megillat Eicha, and we are, we're today going to do some introductory material and look at the structure of Eicha, some of the unique features of the structure of Eicha, which speak directly to its, uh, to its message. And I'd like to pose a question which we will not answer until we complete it. We may take us till after Tisha B'Av, but Eicha will still be in Tanakh even after Tisha B'Av. That's the rumors that I've heard. And as such, uh, it will still be a relevant thing for us to study. The question that I want to file away is, why is Eicha in Tanakh? Now, uh, when we speak of Tanakh, what kind of literature are we referring to? What sort of literature is Tanakh? And so the answer is, it's a, is no, no one single answer. Is Tanakh includes narrative history, Tanakh includes prophecies, Tanakh includes poetry and song, uh, Tanakh uh, also includes something that we call wisdom literature, such as Kohelet and Mishle and, and Eov, uh, and parts of Tilim. Uh, Tanakh also includes something that we would best call expressive literature. And the two, uh, although there are pieces in many books of Tanakh that could be categorized this way, the two books that are exclusively expressive literature are Shir Hashirim and, and uh, Echa. Shir Hashirim expressing tremendous longing and love uh, and desire, and more than that, uh, and Eicha, which of course is pretty much on the opposite side of the spectrum, expressing uh, feelings of, uh, of desperation, of, of wonderment at, uh, at tragedy, uh, etc. And Eicha and Eov, which could easily be conflated because they both are dealing with tragedy, are two very different books. Eov being part of Safruta Chochmah, or wisdom literature, is dealing on a more philosophic or theological uh, uh, approach, trying to understand why God works the way he does. And you, you might even just, uh, if you wanted to put one word as a definition of what Eov is, it's why. Uh, if, why? Why does that happen? If you were to look at uh, Echa, it would just take the title of Echa and say how. Not how in the mechanical sense of how did the walls fall down, but really how could such a thing happen, the, the wonderment of it. The amazement of it. Um, and so just to, by way of a quick introduction, Echa, which is not called Echa by the Chachamim. The Chachamim referred to this book as Kinot. As Kinot. Even though one could argue that the only chapter that is really a Kinah in the way that we know it is the fifth chapter and seems to open up into Kinot. And if you think about Tisha B'Av at night, we read the five chapters of Echa and after the fifth chapter we immediately go into Kinot, which ape the fifth chapter and pick on the phrases from the fifth chapter, Nachlatinu Hayal Zarim, Oilanu, etc., it picks up on that and moves forward. Nonetheless, the entire book really is a kinah. We'll talk about that in the, in the sense of structure. So one quick word about it, and then we'll go into the, uh, the notes that we have here, is that um, narrative in Tanakh can be presented in pretty much whatever form it will be, uh, and as we know, psukim that are longer than five words, with very few exceptions, are going to be broken up into two parts, using the etnachta mark, that's the mark that we use as a pause, to reflect two parts of an idea, when something happened and what happened, who spoke and what he said, etc., what he said and what he answered, um, and that's part of narrative. However, the two parts can be very imbalanced. Uh, for instance, uh, in Breshit Lamed Hey, you have a pasuk, uh, that has one word, which is the first half of the pasuk, vayisau, boom, 
And then, long, long second half, because that's the way that the narrative works. They traveled, and this is what happened. In poetry, it doesn't work that way. Poetry is built on parallelism, and is built on meter. And as such, the two halves of the pasuk in poetry are balanced. As a matter of fact, Hebrew, Hebrew poetry has no concern whatsoever with rhyme. Modern Hebrew poetry does. Tanakh doesn't have any concern with rhyme. has tremendous concern with meter. And so therefore you will have two halves of pasuk which match each other in meter. Ashrei Yoshevei Beitacha Od Yehalalucha. Selah is not part of the pasuk, of course. Ashrei Ha'am Shekachalo Ashrei Ha'am Shadonai Luhav. Right? It'll be, it'll be meter. Part of the reason for that is because it's typically going to be presented chorally in an antiphonal way with song back and forth. There is a particular kind of meter which is deliberately off balance, and that is called kinah meter, or dirge meter, in which the two halves of the pasuk are not of equal uh, amount, which is reflective of the fact that things are out of whack. And therefore, you'll take a look, and you will see that the first two chapters of Eichah and the fourth chapter, which, which are similar in particular style, long, long, long psukim, um, are, are all imbalanced. And let's take a look for an example. Take a look at page 2 for a minute, and you'll see that in the first half, of the, in the first pasuk. And even though ideal-wise it's divided into two, the two halves are not, are not really even in their, in their measure. Uh, look at the second pasuk, an even better example. Along first half, second half, a short second half. Uh, one has three long sticks, the second has two short sticks. So it's, um, it, and it's deliberately written that way. So for Chazal to refer to the entire book as Kinot, even though, again, thematically, we really only pick up on the last chapter for the themes of Kinot, uh, nonetheless, we later uh, um, in, in, invoke some of the earlier uh, themes. Stylistically and poetically, the entire thing is really ki- written as a kinah. Now, we, we are all familiar with the fact that the division of chapters of Tanakh is a Christian division. Uh, there, there is no such thing as chapter divisions in uh, Hebrew Tanakh. Chazal are not familiar with chapter divisions. And we also know that often the chapter divisions wreak havoc with the text. The best example of that is Shirah Shirim, where the chapter marks just in the middle of a parsha, in the middle of an idea, and it's quite uh, disruptive to the text. However, Eicha is probably the clearest example, even more than Tehillim, of a book in which the uh, chapter divisions are inherent and obvious. And that's because Eicha is built on um, acrostics, almost all of them. Um, they're all 22 psukim, and I'll explain what I mean because the third chapter is 66 psukim. But the first four chapters are all alphabetic acrostics. Sort of. They're all abyssidarian acrostics, but sort of. The third chapter is a unique form of that in which instead of there being an aleph and a bet and a gimel, there's three alephs, three bets, three gimels, so it's 66 psukim, but also <coughs> following in the order of the alphabet. <coughs> However, um, all those psukim are short. They're all very short. Boom. So, in reality, the three Aleph psukim together are about the size of one of the psukim in Perak Aleph. 
So if you think about it, when somebody reads Paragimel, unless they use that special tune, that I don't know if any of you know the special tune, there's a special tune used in some communities just for Paragimel. Uh, but if you read it with the, with the regular tune, it just sounds like a pasuk with three at nachtas. It, and the length is, the guy doesn't get more stage time, if you will, than the guy reading Allah for Bet. It's about the same, but it's three psukim instead of one. What? Why does it have a special tune? It has a special tune because, first of all, because of the fact that it's three psukim. So they read the three psukim as one pasuk with a special tune. So that it goes da 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 And so the third pasuk is the one that then it resolves. Um, uh, I actually have a recording of it from last year at Herodion. I was sitting there with my phone and, and I recorded it. It wasn't great, but, uh, but uh, it's, a, it's a very, very haunting tune, especially when you're at Herodion. Um but uh, we're going to take a look, little um, a look a little bit later at the at the structure of the prakim. One famous note to deal with, and we'll look at it in this introductory piece, is that the order of the alphabet is a little bit um, dicey, because in the first parak you of course have the regular order of the alphabet. In the second, third, and fourth prakim, the pe and the ayin are reversed. This is a very famous reversal, the pe ayin reversal. We'll talk about what that may mean. And the fifth parak, interestingly, has mid-sized psukim, longer than the ones in Gimel, but much shorter than the ones in Aleph, Bet, and Dalad, and it's not an alphabetic acrostic. It's Zohar Adonai Hayalaru or Abito Re'etcherpatenu, and it goes through different sentiments, not in seemingly not in any uh, alpha, acrostic type of order. So I have to figure out what's going on with that. The last note about this, before we look at the sources, is <clears throat> that um, a we'll look at the sources, we'll see this directly. Uh, in a famous Brita that we've seen in other contexts, the Brita in Bava Batra, at the end of the first parak, that is the foundational uh, uh, text about the canonization of the Tanakh, um, goes through two pieces. One is the proper order of the books of Tanakh, if you're writing a Tanakh in, in a scroll of Ketuvim, what's the proper order the Ketuvim should be in? Uh, and uh, the Ramam actually passes this, the Chot Sefer Torah. And the second thing is much more controversial. We dealt with it a couple of years ago when we talked about Yudah Hasid and his whole interesting shita about uh, post-Mosaic editions, is who wrote the different books. And that's where the whole famous Machloka about the last eight Pesukim and Yoshua, etc., comes in. In our context, Sidran Shok Tuvim, source one, is root, by the way, if you open up a regular Tanakh, you will not see this. Root, Tehilim, Eov, Mishlei, Kohelet, Shirashirim, Kinot, Kinot is Echa, Daniel, Umigilat Esther, Ezra, Divrayamim. What order is this following? Because it's not the order that we have in our Tanakhim. What's the order here? First is root, then Tehilim, then Eov, then Mishlei, then Kohelet, then Shirashim. It's simply chronological. Based on, based on, based on when, according to the author of this Brita, particular characters either lived or wrote. So root being ascribed to Shmuel, Tehilim being ascribed, according to the author of this Brita, as being compiled by David, David being the last author of Tehilim, and the compiler, the Norton of Tehilim, if you will. Uh, Eov, huge machloken, and this is the jumping off point for the long discussion about when Eov lived, and so the notion that Eov lived sometime during uh, the first temple period. Mishle Kohelet Shirashirim, all being ascribed to whom? Chazal say to Chizkiyahu v'siyato. Chizkiyahu, uh, the king, and uh, that's about the end of the northern kingdom. During that time, he's the king in the south, about the year 715 or so BCE. 
710 BCE, uh, that he's credited with the one who as being the one who assembles this, according to this Brita. Kinot being ascribed to whom? Yirmiyahu, Kinot being Echa. And then Daniel, Megillah, Esther, Ezra, Divya, are all either from the interregnum or else from the Second Temple period. And in the second half of the Brita, which is the one that gets into all the interesting controversial stuff, which is who wrote it, Yirmiyahu katab sifro v'sefer melachim v'kinot. So Yirmiyahu is credited with being the author of Sefer Yirmiyahu, which actually Sefer Yirmiyahu tells us a little bit not that way, because who actually wrote Sefer Yirmiyahu? Yirmiyahu tells us Baruch ben his scribe, was writing it, but okay, but actually the, the book is authored by Yirmiyahu. Uh, Malachim is credited to Yirmiyahu, and Echa is credited to Yirmiyahu. Now why is Echa credited to Yirmiyahu? There's several reasons. So that we need a little bit of a, of a historic background to get a sense of where Echa is coming from. And it could be that we're only going to get through the introductory piece today, but that's also of great value. Why? Yeah. What makes, uh, what is a Megillah and what makes something... That is. So, the... Sorry, what again? Divrei Haktama? Kumi Roni Balayla? Yeah, Kumi Roni Balayla, which is the title on this, on the the series here that I put, is um, a Pasuk in Perak Bet. Kumi Roni Balayla, get up and, and sing at night. And this is leads to Shifchi Kamayim Libech, Nochach Pnei Adonai, pour out your heart like water. Um is a key pasuk in understanding what the sentiments of Echa are, and it also points to one of the several unique features of Echa, which is in practice, that Echa is the only Megillah where it's chief reading, and really it's only reading, is at night. All Megillot are read during the day, and as we've seen several times around Purim time, even Megillot Esther, its main reading is during the day. The night reading is maybe from a post-Tanaitic time, it certainly is minor relative to the daytime reading. Echa is only read at night, and so Kumi Roni Balayla seems to be the source text for that. So I picked that for the, the phrase. Um, just the, the historic setting. Um, why was the Beit HaMikdash destroyed? Anytime you have this discussion, it depends very much if you're discussing Megillat Echa or Midrash Echa. Midrash Echa, which of course is a post-destruction Midrash, is perhaps the most beautiful piece of literature that we have in all of rabbinic literature. It, the collection of all of rabbinic literature. It is, it is amazing. It's gorgeous. It's very, very sad, obviously. Uh, but Midrash Echa. Midrash Echa may be the most beautiful collection of rabbinic literature that we have. Of course, that's an issue of taste also. But some of the most famous passages we have um, come from, from Midrash Echa, the famous one about each one of the Avod coming to Hashem and asking him to forgive Bnei Israel. And finally, it's Rachel, that she was willing to give up her simanim, not to embarrass her sister, whose schut saves Am Yisrael. Um, some of the most uh, gorgeous passages come from there, and it's, and it's, it's, it's the, the, the creativity of pain that's really powerful. Um, Midrash Echa, you can only speak about really two major events and a lot of minor events, and that is the destruction of Yehuda and, and Beitar. And because that's all after Beitar. And so that's what the setting is. But when you talk about Megillat Echa, there's only one thing you're talking about, that's the destruction of Yerushalayim. Why was Yerushalayim destroyed in the year 586 BCE? So you can give all sorts of theological explanations, but if you ask a historian, what will, will he tell you? Right. So the, the answer is actually straightforward, which is that the Babylonians who were moving westward, because you have to remember, if you, if you live in the Middle East, any time until, really until uh, the Persians, 
If you're living in, in Israel, anytime during that period, you are in the middle of a war zone. The war zone is always between Egypt and whoever is ascendant in the east. And they're always at each other, and you're in the middle. And if you're smart, you stay out of their way. And if you're not smart, they can make it not a great move like Yoshiel makes. And you try to get involved, you get killed. Uh, that's, of course, uh, the famous passage of Yahoo wailing for Yoshiel. Um, and what happened is the Babylonians, who beat up on the Assyrians in about the year 610 BCE, and then started marching westward, of course, Egypt is the goal, uh, come and conquer Shalim in the year 597 BCE. They take all of the aristocracy and send them away into ch- in chains. They take the kin- the king, Yehoiachin, and he has, well, he's in club fed. He's, he's in a nice prison there. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, there is still a, uh, a community. There's a Beit HaMikdash. They're operating, and just you be good guys, and they appoint a member of David's family, member of the, of the royal family by the name of Matanya, and they change his name to Tzitkiah, and appoint him as their puppet king, and say, you be a good boy and everything will be fine. And he was surrounded by all sorts of what we refer to as Nevi'eh Sheker. There was the lead uh, spokesman who claimed to be prophets, who told him that uh, Bavel is going down, and if you sign a treaty with Egypt, Egypt will come to your aid, and, and therefore they even were telling the Jews who had been exiled to Bavel, sit on your suitcases because you're coming home. Yirmiyahu was the one Navi at the time who was telling Sidkiyahu that ain't the way it is, and you have to submit to Bavel, and it's going to be for a while. And he sent the famous letter in Parachavtet to the Jews in the Gola saying, settle down, buy land, plant gardens, marry your daughters off, take daughters for your sons, right, you'll be there, and later you will come back. And, uh, and that's why Yirmiyahu himself buys land in Israel as a demonstration of the fact that we know we're coming back, but not so quick. Um, Sidkiyahu makes the terrible mistake of believing everybody else, signs an agreement with Egypt. The Babylonians say, you're not a good boy, you didn't do what you're supposed to do. Babylon comes and destroys. And Yirmiyahu then is wailing. So why is Yirmiyahu assumed to be the author of Echa? For several reasons. First of all, because he's the only true prophet that we know of who was around at the time. Second of all is because there's a lot of common language between the book of Yimiyahu and the book of Eicha. Right? Including the, even the term Eicha that shows up. Yeah. There was, um, and and uh, just to add to that, is that, and this is probably the most powerful point, is that Paragimel, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, Paragimel is an autobiographical parak in the first person, um, first person singular, Ani HaGever, which does not start with the Aleph of Eicha, but with Ani, and it describes events that are matched perfectly with Yirmiyahu's life, as we know from Sefer Yirmiyahu. So he seems very much to be the author. However, when you look at the fifth parak, you have to have a whole different approach to who wrote it and when, because the fifth parak is written from the perspective of uh, a destruction that happened a long time ago, or a while ago, not that's happened in front of our eyes. Last point about that is, um, is that uh, I'm sorry, you're taking the question. I was just going to say, in 1998, there was a movie called Jeremiah that was played by. Uh, All right, so um, the 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 structure itself of Echa, which is uh, which is um, five chapters. Again, chapter 1, 2, and 4, all 22 long verses in the Kinam meter following the alphabet. The third chapter being three alphabets, as it were. And the last chapter being 22 psukim, but not with any particular order. 
is something that obviously, and by the way, that's the, where my starting point is, is that it becomes very easy to talk about Perak Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, and Hay without having to say, yeah, but that's the Christian division. It's kind of an obvious division. Uh, as opposed to, let's say, Root. When you look at Root, the four chapters are pretty reasonable divisions, but if you look in a Megillat root, you see it's all one story, except for that little epilogue at the end with the generations. It's all one parsha. Here, almost every pasuk is a parsha by itself, as you can see. On this handout, that's what it looks like in Megillat Echa. Uh, by the way, has anybody ever heard uh, Echa read from a Megillah? In Shalom, the Minigas do it with the Megillah. The one difference is that they say the Brachal Mikra Megillah, and they do not say Shachianu, because obviously not going to say Shachianu over Teshavah. Okay, so... The Midrash has several approaches to understanding what the structure is. And the, 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 the starting point has got to be also, why, forget about the, the five chapters, etc., but why is any chapter ever in an abecedarian acrostic? Why would it be an olive bed? We're familiar with Ashray. Why would it be that way? So one is symbolic and encompasses everything. What's another possibility? Exactly. Easy to remember and easy for public recitation. Okay, I ask you, what's next? Right, we all know it. Right, but if I were to give you another parak, right, uh, you know it's Saku because you know the Tzadi. Pay Tzadi. So easy. Right? Sophia. And you don't have to say each week to know it. You know, pay Tzadi. Kind of easy to remember. And it makes it easy to remember. And often when you have a song, you know, or a poem, if you ever had to memorize long poems in, in high school, in college, then uh, in high school, then uh, it's often easy if you can remember the first word in the line that sets you off on the line. So that's helpful. So you see both of those approaches uh, in this Midrash. Now, Pinchas Patach. Patach is uh, something we talked about a couple years ago in the context of Midrash Eicha. One of the most beautiful elements of Midrash Eicha is something that exists in other Midrashim, but in Eicha it's a huge collection. It's called a petichta. Petichta is called a proem. P-R-O-E-M. And what it means is an introductory midrash that works in an opposite way of most midrashim. Most midrashim you're familiar with start with a key pasuk and when their way to a message. Here it starts with some other pasuk, has a whole message, and ends with the pasuk that you're going to read. So all the petichta ot of Echa start with whatever other pasuk and a long story, etc., etc., and ends with Alkein konein yirmiyahu Echa. And what you can imagine is everybody's gathered to read Echa, and the but the darshan is giving this introduction and leading you right into and right away you go Echa Yashvah Badad. So Pinchas Patach. This is how Pinchas opened up his or introduced his drasha on uh, pre Echa. And, and often the darshanim on Echa, meaning pre the reading of Echa, would begin with one of the psukim of chastisement and rebuke in the Torah, either in Vayikra or in Dvarim, um, or from passages from Yirmiyahu. If you do not listen to me, then I'm going to afflict you seven times over. That's in Bechukotai. The number seven keeps playing in Bechukotai. Rabbi Lazar Rabbi Yeshua. So Rabbi Pinchas quotes a machloka between Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua. Those are End of first century. It was right after the destruction. Right? never punishes until he testifies first. How do we know it? How do you read the word ad? Okay, a little drush up. Israel shouldn't turn around and say, this is why it says ad 
He says, don't think that Am Yisrael shouldn't turn around and say, oh, God's used up all of his punishments, we're all out of punishments, now we can have fun and do whatever we want. If you haven't listened till now, meaning, I have more than this that I can bring. And then what does he say at the end of the Pasuk? I'm going to afflict you seven times over. Now, it's unclear what these seven sins are, whether they have to do with Shemitah, which is the context there. And by the way, which Yumiyahu ties into the destruction of the first Mikdash. Except seven punishments. And again, so now, how do they work it in? Yumiyahu comes and gives you seven alphabets of chastisement and of dirging. Sorry. What are the seven? Chapter one, chapter two, three in chapter three, chapter four, and then they're conveniently calling chapter five an olive bed, even though there is no olive bed there. Why? Because it's 22 psukim. So it's like there's seven alphabets in, in, uh, in Echa to, to kind of respond to the seven punishments that you're getting. That's position one. So that would be like what Ariel was saying, which is that it is symbolic of, of kind of uh, of response. In this other Midrash in Echa, why was, was Echa written in Aleph Bet? We have three opinions, but the only one that speaks to us. This is, uh, in the Navi terms to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. it sounds like kind of imitating what, you, what, you, what Eliyahu says, they've all left your Torah. And this is very much what Ariel is saying, is that the Torah goes from Aleph to Tav. And so therefore, Therefore, it's written in alphabet. Now, both of these are symbolic. One speaks to the amount of the alphabets, seven of them. The other is to the very fact of the alphabet, that it encompasses everything. But then there is what, what, uh, what David said. This in Otsar Midrashim, this is a later Midrash. Should be very easy for everybody to say. Which is an interesting note, because what's the one what's the one place where the text itself tells us know how to say this by heart so that you'll be very easy testimony against yourself? That's Hazinu. You're supposed to learn Hazinu by heart so that when all these bad things befall you, you will say it, it'll be a testimony against you and you realize this is why all this stuff has happened, right? So here the Midrash picks up the same thread and weaves it into Eicha and said, why do we want Eicha to be Aleph Bet? So we very easy people to say. That's Hazinu. So just like Efno Hazinu by heart, Efno Eicha by heart, not by heart, but it should be easy to you, for you to respond with. The notion is that when good things happen, it's very easy to gather together, have a leader and respond, call and response. Halal, nobody ever said Efno Halal by heart. But when there's sadness, often you're desolate, you're on your own. It should be easy for you to draw on sources of expression of this dirge. <clears throat> now, the one other thing about the structure that, that is interesting about this pay and reversal. So, there's a midrash here um, that speaks back to what is rabbinically and midrashically the source of Tisha B'Av. So the source of Tisha B'Av is not really the right word. But sort of the core of Tisha B'Av as a day of punishment. And what do Chazal connect Tisha B'Av to what historic event? It is the quote-unquote miraglim. 
Right? The scouts came back and they gave the report and everybody freaked out. Everybody's screaming and crying. Uh, that night, what is the famous drush of Rabbah? God said, You cried for naught. I'm going to make this a night of weeping for generations. And that's again part of the Kumi Roni Balayla, the idea of weeping at night. Um, at night is also a time of isolation. Kumi in the singular, Roni Balayla. And so the, the notion here is that the Miraglim, as they're called, spoke before they <coughs> took a look at what was happening. The order in the alphabet that we have is Mem Nun Samach Ayin Pei. I was thinking, what is an ayin? An ayin is an eye. What is a pay? It's a mouth. So it means first you look and you think and kind of look ahead and think what's going to happen. Then you speak. Right? We're all familiar with the filter. You filter out what you're going to say. And the idea is, Here it's an even stronger statement. Is that ultimately the ten guys said stuff they didn't even see. If they exaggerated and they reported stuff they didn't see, and that's what led to the tragedy. So because of that, to remember it, the pay and ayin are switched. However, we have uh, a much more likely explanation for why the pay and ayin are, are uh, separated. Um, as you know, we found lots and lots of artifacts from Bayit Rishon times, a little bit from pre-Bayit Rishon times, but the exciting stuff that we found for the most part has been from that 10th to 6th century BCE. Um, and one of the most common things that we found of uh, archives, not of uh, artifacts, meaning of written things, have been writing exercises. Uh, in Isbitsarta, we found, uh, uh, we found uh, this goes back, what, 10th century BC, I believe. And it's all, of course, in Paleo-Hebrew. And we found alphabets <coughs> that, are written by, uh, that are written by students, evidently practicing their writing. And uh, interesting that in some of the cases, the alphabet goes left to right. Right. Um, uh, there's another thing about the alphabet we'll talk about uh, in the next session, but uh, in many of the uh, in many of the alphabet exercises they have the order is payayin, which tells you that the order of the alphabet was either not yet determined or there was a variant order in which the pay came before the ayin at the time of Bayit Rishon, which would be Yirmiyahu. Yeah, good. So if you take a look at some of the Tehillim that we have. Um, and and a really good example that's actually Eshet Chayil. Uh, you could see that there are places, first of all, where the pay is missing in acrostics, right? Like for instance, in uh, in Chafe, right? Um, and uh, and where the pay and ayin seem to not make sense in the order that they're in. So, for instance, at the, in the Septuagint version of Eshet Chayil, the pay and ayin are switched. Right? Eshet Chayil is Mishlei, so. We'll give that to Chizkiyahu, at least the very end of it. Right? But the Pei and Ayin, in their translation, are switched because it seems to actually flow a little bit better the paving in front of the Ayin. And in several of the other Prakim of Tehillim that you see, where you have the Ayin and Pei, so for instance, in Lama Dalad, um, that you, it, if you look at Lama Dalad, you could, you could see that it actually flows better if the Pei is before the Ayin. So does it mean that at some later point before canonization, it was fixed that Ayin comes before Pei, and therefore they switch things, unclear, I'm not going to take a position on that, but the iron pay order is 
the Peiyin order is very well attested. Echa is the clearest proof because you have three uh, the chapter two and three times three and four are all pay the Nayin, uh, and you have all of these artifacts that we found where pay comes before Ayin. It's mixed. The bottom line is, if you think about it, there is no reason to have an order to an alphabet. Why would you have an order to an alphabet? There's only one good reason to have an order to an alphabet, and that is exactly for that, for scribal exercises. Gematria. Right? Yeah, so gematria is a much, much later push into the text, which is, uh, which is not inherent in the text. What would happen there with the gematria? What? If they switched, wouldn't it change a lot of the gematria? Right, which tells you all you need to know. Right, exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, again, it, it, gematria is, as Chazal say, parperet l'chokhmah. They're a cute little, like, a nice little device. It's a good way to remember certain things. All right? It's a good way to remember an association. Avraham 248, Ramach mitzvot say. It's a good way to remember it. But more than that, it, taking it more seriously than that is very tr- troubling. Right? And you could end up with all sorts of bizarre things and things that I'll say off a record when we're done, which will give you a good laugh. But, uh, you know, I don't know what else to hear. Um, so... Uh, just one other one other piece I want to want to show you is this whole notion of a public reading. There is no mention anywhere in the Gemara about reading Megillah Echa publicly. In fact, the only Megillah that's mentioned anywhere in the sources in the rabbinic sources to be read publicly is, of course, Megillah Esther, of which we have a whole Masechet sort of. We have a few Mishnayot about that. Uh, however, in Masechet Sofrim, which we've dealt with in the past, uh, even in the context of Esther of Megillah Esther at night. You have the following. Yesh Shikorin Sefer Kinot Ba'erev. Now, this is 8th century, and notice what they're saying. Some people read Eich at night, and they're still calling it Kinot, by the way. Um, why, why did it get stop, stop getting called Kinot, and why do we refer to it as Eich? Because in rabbinic literature, it's called Kinot. Probably because once the Kinah literature got going, and all of the Kinot were assembled as a way of distinguishing, it referred to it as Eich. One small note about keynote is that the keynote that we say, that huge collection of keynote, that either you say it all without paying attention, or else you say a few. I mean, I don't know anybody who can go through the whole thing on Tisha about fasting and actually be paying attention to all of the words. Very hard words, very hard stuff. Um, but if you're able to, Shrecha. Um, but the keynote were originally written as, like some of the Paitanim, as really this year's keynote. In other words, it wasn't like, let's keep adding, but it's like, this is this year's keynote. And the keynote, by the way, were originally written to be said within tefillah, within Shemona Esrei. Not as a separate, after you finish, we sit down. It's a later development. But as keynote suddenly became a collection, very likely that's why at some point they began referring to our, to our book as Eichat. Yesh Akorin Sefer Kinot Ba'erev. Some people read it at night. V'yesh Ma'acharin Ara Boker. Some people will only read it in the morning. L'achar Kriyat Torah. The idea is that according to this tradition, where they would only read Eicha in the morning after Kriya, and the idea is that by that time you're really into the fast, and you're really feeling terrible, and then you're going to really weep. As opposed to at night, think about it, you just had a pretty decent meal, and you know, you're... You know, you're, 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 you're not fully into... The idea is you should be fully into the morning when you read Eicha. If you know how to translate it, that's fine. Everybody should understand what it says. So according to this, it should be translated. Everybody, 
women and men all have to hear Eicha and they have to understand what's being said. So it's important to translate for them what's going on. By the way, Eicha has somewhat difficult language, somewhat challenging language, which we'll see in the uh, in in the future weeks. I think we we won't get into the uh, to the parak itself. I will just point out one interesting thing about the alphabet and about acrostics. Um, you notice that, of course, our parak follows what's called formerly an abecedarian acrostic. An abecedarian means a, B, C, D. That's a, that's a real word. It's great for Scrabble. Anyhow, um, uh, too many letters, but, you know, if you have something set up. Uh, however, um, there was, and this would get back to Tehillim, um, there was an article written, I'm thinking about 20 years ago, by, uh, by my cousin, Hanan Eshel, Zichro Livracha, uh, about um, uh, an ostracon that was found, uh, this is something Kuban reported on years ago, an ostracon that was found in which there was a writing exercise in which it started Lamed Mem Nun Samach Peyayin Sadikuf Reishin Tav and then Aleph Bet Kimmel Dal like, so it started from Lamed, went to the end then started from Aleph Bet and this supported the idea that we have in several languages where there seemed to be two different alphabets working one was, the one starts Aleph Bet the other one that seems to start in the middle what's our middle? And in Latin, there's even a reference to this because they would refer to it as an elementa. That's, by the way, where the word elementary comes from, L-M-N. It would start just like A-B-C-D, it would start L-M-N. And uh, their argument was that if you take a look at Tehillim, take a look when you have a chance at home, at Tehillim, Tet and Yod. Tet and Yod together on acrostic. Tet starts with an Aleph, and then Yod starts with an Lamed. And, it, you know, it, it's like every two or three psukim is a new letter. And it goes through an acrostic, but the thing is a little weird, because Parak Tet thanks God for taking care of all the Rishayim, and Yod is a plea to God to take care of the Rishayim. You think about how backwards that is. So Hanan, suggested that really Tet Yod were reversed, and that really originally, Lama, which is the beginning of Yod, was really the beginning of the first chapter. Hashem, please, stop these evil doers. And then the, there's that, but then when the... They, decision was made that the alphabet only starts with an olive, so it was reversed. And he explains several things that way. If you take a look at this parak, you will see that it operates in a sort of two wheels, and either one could be the starting place. And what we'll do it next time that we, we learn, we won't, we'll meet in two weeks, because next week I'll be in New York, um, is that you can actually see it as starting from the lamin or starting from the olive. And they both work elegantly as an interaction between the mekonen, the dirger, and the city itself. And that dialogue going on. We'll see that next week.